In a dark, dark room, on Halloween night, three 12-year-old friends sit in a quiet, dark, unfinished basement. The trick-or-treating sugar high has worn off. Candy has been sorted and traded, and now it's time for the real scares. They knew their parents were still at a neighborhood Halloween party, so with the house to themselves, they got down to business. The Ouija board sits on the concrete floor between them, a candle flickering on either side. Does anyone know how to work this thing? The one dressed as a clown asks. Shh! The other two reply. We have to stay very quiet when we're not talking to the board or it will get confused, said the zombie-clad leader of the group. And when we're done, we have to say goodbye. If you don't close the line of communication, the ghosts will stay in our world, said the last of the trio, a smallish girl dressed as a black cat. Bullshit, this is crazy, the loud clown said yet again in full voice. Shh, the other two repeat, this time more frantically. The zombie instructs, everyone, put two fingers on the planchette and close your eyes. Clear your mind and take three deep breaths. Open your eyes. Okay. Now what? The black cat asks with trepidation. We talked to it, the zombie replied. Um, okay. Is, is anyone there? The black cat asks, her voice now shaking a little. The planchette slowly begins to slide and moves over to yes. You're moving it, the clown yells. Shh, no we're not, the other two hissed. Who are you, asks the zombie. T-I-M, the planchette spells out. His name is Tim, cried the black cat. Oh, this is so weird, the clown says, now whispering. Tim, what brought you here tonight, the zombie asks with some false confidence. The planchette swirls around momentarily before spelling out, Y, O, U. You're here to see us? That's nice, the cat replied. But then the planchette took a sharp turn and pointed furiously to no. You're not here to see us? Asked the clown. Then why are you here? The planchette began to move again and this time with more fluidity. G, E, T-Y-O-U. Get you, the zombie said. You want to get us? How? You're, you're a ghost. Just then, a rattling sound clattered through the walls, and the planchette spelled again. N-O-T-M-E. Not me? Not you? What does that mean? clown said, growing more frantic. N-O-T-M-E, it spelled out again and again, and the rattling in the walls grew louder. Now it sounded like something crawling through the vent, and the planchette stopped in the center before it began again. H-I-M. Him? The girl dressed as the black cat said. Who is him? What is happening? For a moment, the planchette froze as the rattling sounds turned to banging and grew ever closer. 
The kids froze in abject terror as the planchette moved just one more time, spelling out R-U-N. Run, the clown said. Run, I'm not about to ignore a ghost. We have to run. No sooner had the three jumped to their feet, knocking over one of the candles, before the basement walls began to shake. A large vent in the ceiling swung open and two large feet clad in filthy work boots emerged. A large, hulking, filthy man lowered himself from the ceiling. He was wearing a child's plastic bunny mask and clutching a length of wire. The children scrambled from the basement and out the front door with the man lumbering behind them. The kids hit the streets at a breakneck pace, screaming, and the terrifying giant stopped at the threshold, smiling under his mask. You forgot to say goodbye, he rumbled and stalked back into the house, disappearing into the fence. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead. scare leslie today you guys that was for her there's ghosts and ouija boards and the guy in the vents those are all the things you hate the bunny mask (laughs) i know a kid's mask is terrible all of it is a frightening image man he just wanted them to say goodbye (laughs) but he did they didn't say goodbye to the ghost that's what he was saying because the girl in the beginning was like you have to say goodbye or the portal stays open and the ghost can come out oh yeah but it seemed like that ghost was there to get that guy or to I'm get them there. to run out of the house. Oh. Oh. It's mysterious. You don't know. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Now they're all partying with that scary killer in the bunny mask. Sounds like a like a fun house. <laughs> or a fun house. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> hey, Ooh. Leslie. Hey, Ollie. <laughs> hey, Beans. Well, this week I was sca- uh, tasked with telling a tale that will specifically scare my co-host. We wanted to enjoy this spooky time right along with you guys, and so we decided to hearken back to our half a ween episodes. But then we got too excited and each wrote an entire episode on our own. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what happened. Yep. Leslie will scare me to death after Halloween with a story that is no doubt about aliens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I hate them so much. So you can all look forward to that, and um, along with that, it'll be my like constant sounds of terror and distress. Yep. But this week, I'll be telling Leslie and all of you the tale of the Denver Spider-Man. I don't like that. I know. I mean, it sounds nice and fun and Marvel-esque. Yeah, it sounds like a haphazard knockoff superhero, right? Yeah. It isn't. Okay. Definitely isn't. But I hope it scares you a whole lot. Mm. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) Hmm. That'll be nice. Yeah. Well, I suppose the time has come to uh, reveal the topic of our live show. Oh, yes. Hasn't it? Yes. We haven't told anyone yet. We've kept you guys on the edge of your seats. Ooh, yeah. So if you're coming to our live show on Mischief Night, we will be telling you a story that has everything. Ghosts. Murders. Ghost murders. That's right. <laughs> we are telling the true story of the Amityville horror. <sighs> this has been requested by several people. It is 
frightening and true and awesome. So you should come on out to Cape May Brewing Company on Mischief Night. And for those of you who don't have a Mischief Night, that is October 30th, a.k.a. this Saturday. I just got butterflies. I know. I'm so excited. (laughs) There will be thrills, chills, costumes, spooky tunes, and delicious beer. And most importantly, us. Yeah. We'll be there. That's exciting. It's the best part. Yeah. Just hang out with us. (laughs) (laughs) But we don't want to appear live before an eager audience looking exhausted and unintentionally Mm -hmm. ghoulish. On purpose, ghoulish maybe, but like unintentionally, not so much. Maybe our costumes are pretty. You guys don't know. You don't know? You know what we're going to be. So if you would be so kind as to head on over to Apple Podcasts and shower us in life-giving validation, we would be eternally grateful. It's easy. Just leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review, and we instantly appear younger and more full of life. It's like that that simple. Yeah. Right? That sounds so easy. It is really easy, and I know that, you know, all of our fiends can do it. Yeah. I believe in you. I mean, we'll look like babies in no time. <laughs> Beautiful babies. Beautiful, scary babies. (laughs) With gorgeous hair. Yes. Also, ratings and reviews really are the only way to move this podcast forward and to make more special fun events like this one possible. And if you want even more We Would Be Dead in Your Life, you can head on over to Patreon, where for just a small monthly donation, you will receive a special gift from us, access to our patrons-only content, which includes special minisodes, our patrons-only podcast, 30-minute horror movies, our weekly video after show, host mortem, and any other extras we feel inspired to throw your way. We also provide special offers on our merchandise, an on-air toast dedicated just to you, and more. And if all of that is a little too much for you, but you still want to help out, you can simply share anything we post on our social media to your social media feeds. Tell us when you're listening. Post about your favorite episode. Recommend your friends listen for a good Halloween scare. Tell a friend. Tell a neighbor. Tell that poor guy behind the counter at Spirit who is clearly overwhelmed at this point and could use a little escape. What's his name? Gosh, so many names are flooding in. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go with Richard. Richard. <laughs> okay. Then your Everyone friends- calls him Dick, and he's like, it's Richard. And he hates it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then your friends and Dick can become fiends. <laughs> Richard. <laughs> I'm sorry, Richard. There is no Dick fiends here. <laughs> That's the tag this yeah. week. You're welcome. Then we can all hang out together. I don't know if that's good or not, but. <laughs> and hopefully at our live show this Saturday. Come on, Dick. Let's go. Richard. Richard. <laughs> and I think that is all I have for this week. Oh, um, if you want a VIP pass to our show, I think they are now available to everyone. How would they be getting that? Do we know? Yeah, they can just message us. They okay. can email us at wewouldbedeadpodcast at gmail.com. And, yeah, so if you want a VIP ticket or a VIF, very important, fiend. Very important. Um, they are $10, yep. and it will get you a cool gift, which is basically oh, what wow. that price is for. It is a really it is a really cool gift, mm-hmm. like and, top-notch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and then we have like a little front row section that we'll reserve for for those people. Yeah, you get the um, VIP section. Yeah, so cool. But otherwise, you can just come for free and not get the cool gift. Yeah, or like be at the cool kids table. So yeah, you're gonna want to do that for sure. Anyway, <laughs> Leslie, do you have anything to add before we begin? Not this week. No. No. All right then. On with the show. Philip Peters was a well-respected man. 
he had spent 42 of his 73 years on the planet living in Denver, Colorado, where he had earned himself a rather sterling reputation. Philip was a stable, kind, good-natured, and charitable member of the community. He was the kind of guy you could always rely on to give your kid a ride home from school when you got caught up at work, or help shovel your front walk during a nasty snowstorm. Just like a good neighbor. Yeah. Nice guy. Philip and his wife, Helen, lived in a three-bedroom bungalow at 3335 West Mount Crife Place. Their son had moved out long ago and now had a wife of his own. The couple still enjoyed their time together, even though things were getting a little slower than they used to be. Mm. Yeah, so they're like a cute old couple living in their cute little house. So cute. Yes. With really wonderful neighbors. Love it. All this sounds great so far. Mm -hmm. (laughs) In late September of 1941, Helen had taken a fall, the impact of which broke her hip. Poor Helen. I know. A broken hip is nasty. Doctors told Philip that she would be in the hospital for, at the very least, a month. Now, I assume this is because the break required surgery, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't specify in any of the articles I read. But I guess the most frequent thing to do when you break a hip is that you get surgery, and then you are in the hospital for a minimum of 30 days. Okay. Still. Probably with rehab. Yeah. It's like when you get, like, your new knees. Yeah. But, like, still, I can't believe if you break a hip, you're still to this day going to be in the hospital for a month. Wow. That's bananas to me. That's a really long time. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, Philip hardly knew how he would get along without Helen for a week, let alone over a month. They had never been apart for longer than that. Mm. So, like, just a week, maybe, when one of them went away. They spent all their time together. So cute. I know. Luckily, one of Philip's longtime neighbors and friends offered to make Philip dinner every single night while Helen was away. Isn't that nice? Yeah. I love that. Philip was touched by her kindness and accepted her gracious offer. But she doesn't have a name in this story, so uh, we should give her one. Okay. Um, Pam? Pam is good. Yeah. I like Pam. We like Pam. Neighbor Pam. Neighbor Pam. Everyone needs a neighbor Pam. (laughs) (laughs) And so it was that every night, Philip would head over to Pam's house for dinner after he had visited with Helen in the afternoon. So he saw his wife every day and then went home, got changed, and went over to Pam's house and had dinner. Mm, Had some dinner at Pam's, huh? No, we like Pam. Okay. All right. (laughs) This isn't sassy Pam. No. It's friendly she, Pam. Is she going to be Spider-Man? No, she's not. Spider-Pam? Spider-Pam. <laughs> I'm on fire. <laughs> Pam enjoyed Philip's company and was happy to give back to someone who had always been a pillar of their community. But one night, October 17th to be specific, Philip never showed up for dinner. His neighbor, Pam, knew right away that something must be wrong. She knew that Helen had not yet returned home and that Philip had not been doing terribly well without her. He had enjoyed coming to her house for a little company and a hot meal, but was otherwise kind of down in the dumps without Mm. his wife. But he would not have missed dinner without so much as telling Pam that she need not set another place at the table that night. Right, that'd be rude. Right, and he's a very polite man. Time ticked by, and still there was no word from Philip. With the dinner hour long past, Pam decided to walk over to Philip's house to make sure everything was all right. She walked down the street and knocked on his door, but there was no answer. The house was silent and dark. The neighbor, Pam, did not like the look of this at all. And so, like the good citizen she was, she called the damn cops. Yes, girl. Just kidding. (laughs) First, she rounded up a troop of neighbors to poke around and look for Philip. Because when in doubt, call a neighbor boy. Call them neighbor boys. 
Get him to get him to look around. She basically she just said, I want you to look around outside in his yard and stuff and look in all the windows, try the doors, see if we can get into the house without breaking anything. I think he might have he's an old guy who walks with a cane. He might have had a fall. Right. And like fallen and he can't get up situation. Right. His wife broke her hip. Yeah. He maybe could break he his. also did. You don't know what's going on. <laughs> so the neighbors, also eager to help, all come over to Philip's house. And check both doors, which are locked and bolted tightly, and every window, which were latched with the screens, firmly intact. Philip's car was also in the driveway, and no one had seen or heard from him since the previous day. Hmm. Mm-hmm. His wife, Helen, uh, I guess they gave her a call, confirmed that she had not had her daily visit from him. But she assumed that her husband had been caught up with one project or another, or someone offered to take him to the movies or mm-hmm. amuse him while she was gone, and she wasn't really concerned. Mm. That is until now. So now it's time to call the damn cops. Okay. When the police arrived, they knocked several times at both the front and back doors to no answer. Which, like, (laughs) it's okay, guys. Our knock is going to be better. Everyone else had knocked. The cops show up and they're like, hold up, people. Yeah. Was that better? Was our knock better? Yeah. they're, They're just more authoritative. Apparently. So, yeah, maybe their knock would summon him from the depths of— He'd be like, oh, fine, the cops are here. I'll open the door. All right. I guess if it's the cops, I'll crawl with my broken hip to the door. (laughs) But no, they did not get any answer. They shone their flashlights in the windows, couldn't see anything in the darkness, and finally decided that they would have to break down the front door, which they did, forcing their way into their house. I guess they could, like, shoulder their way through it or whatever. I bet they got real excited about that. I bet they did. They were like, we got to break the door, Jim. It's not every day you get to break a door. (laughs) So they they managed to— Oh, no, I think they got in— They they broke down the back door. That's the one they broke down with their shoulders. they didn't come in from both sides? No, they just came in from the back. SWAT (laughs) team. No, I think that they they knew that the front had, like, double locks. They had, like, a a bolt and, like, a chain lock. Mm -hmm. And the back door was just the one lock, so it was Mm -hmm. easier to break down. So they shouldered their way into the back door— and immediately, it felt not right. Ooh, just a bad vibe. Just a bad vibe. It was deathly still, pitch dark, and cold. Oh, God, I'm not feeling good now. No. <laughs> Philip and Helen had heated their home with the help of a coal shaker stove, and it had clearly not been lit that day. Okay. The police made their way through the first floor, turning on lights and calling out for Philip as they went. And it didn't take long for them to arrive in the kitchen where they were met with a horrible scene. <sighs> Philip lay on the floor, covered in blood and barely recognizable, clearly dead. His what head happened? smashed to a bloody pulp. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Philip had been beaten to death, again, as I said, almost beyond recognition. Next to him on the floor were his cane, which had been broken in half, the stove shaker, an old broken pistol, and a towel smeared with blood. The weapons had been wiped clean, apparently, but all of them remained right in the place where they were left. But all the doors were locked from the inside. Yes, they were. That's true. I hate this. We're done. (laughs) That's the point. (laughs) Things were getting curiouser and curiouser. I'm not curious. We can go home now. (laughs) Oh, are you all wondering what a stove shaker is? Sure. Don't worry. I was too. (laughs) A shaker is a tool resembling a hand crank that is inserted into the stove and used to move the coal or Mm -hmm. wood grates back and forth to shake the collected ash loose into a receptacle below so that the fires will continue to burn and stay hot. It is made of heavy, solid metal 
And I imagine it might be sort of similar in hitting power to a small hammer. Mm -hmm. So easy to do a lot of damage with a stove shaker. Mm. The police then went through the rest of the house. At first they thought this looks like a robbery gone wrong. Like someone had tried to rob him, caught him, and then end up killing him and running. But so much of this doesn't add up. For starters, absolutely nothing was missing from the house. Philip's watch and wallet lie undisturbed on the dresser in the master bedroom. Philip himself looked as though he had been caught off guard in the middle of changing. He was barefoot and half-dressed. Then there was the little matter, matter of the doors. Every single one of them was locked up tight from the inside, as you mentioned. <sighs> the windows were shut tight and completely undisturbed. The front door had the chain lock still neatly in place. There would have been no way for an intruder to have gotten in or out. <coughs> and yet, Philip was most certainly alone. Oh. I always think it's funny when they say, like, nothing had been stolen. Like, who are these people? They don't know what's in his house. Like, they could have. I, I think. I think when they walk around, they're like, okay, I it see look- major appliances. Nothing's yeah. been rifled through. There's There was money yeah. sitting out. Right, So, right. like, if you were going to rob the place, you would steal his, like, nice watch and his wallet full of money. Yeah. And they probably, neighbors were like, oh, knew where he kept some stuff, and they didn't see anything right. missing. Unless it was so. like a more sophisticated robbery, and they were stealing like His classic diamonds book or, or something. something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think Philip had a chest of diamonds, but I mean, we don't know so far. You don't we know. We just don't know. It's Maybe what he did. Pam was attracted to. <laughs> Pam was like, I'm going to get those diamonds. Like, Spider Pam did to get them. <laughs> that is not the story we're telling. Anyway, could this have been a very strange suicide? Yes. No. It seemed highly unlikely. (laughs) (laughs) You're just trying to stop it. Yeah. There was no note, and Philip had been eagerly awaiting his wife's return. Furthermore, the medical examiner would report that the injuries that killed Philip could not have been self-inflicted. Philip had been struck with blunt objects, namely the stove shaker and the old pistol, over 30 times. Twelve of those hits had been directly to his head. The pistol had been used with such force that it split in half eventually. Mm. Now, as I, I don't know if I got this or not, but he didn't get, he wasn't shot with the pistol. There's no shooting involved, just beating him to death with the blunt end of it. Philip had most certainly been murdered, and not just murdered, over-murdered. There was evidence that the beating had not stopped simply because Philip passed on. It continued until whoever was dishing it out was satisfied and moved on. Yeah. So it's likely that the first handful of blows to his head killed him. He was an older guy, and this is like blunt, heavy object to the head, but they just Ugh. kept going. And and they came up on him. He was unprepared for this. So like there's, he right. wasn't like furiously fighting back. They suspected he did fight back a little because he had his cane and the cane was broken. But again, whoever, whoever oh, had come in. I hate, I hate old people getting hurt. I know. Whoever <laughs> had come in and done this crime was easily able to overpower him. Someone else had definitely been in that house at the time of Philip's death. Someone filled with rage and hate. And somehow they made it out without disturbing a single solitary thing. Hmm. The police investigated every room in the home thoroughly, combing through every nook and cranny. They even opened the cubby hole in the closet that was far too small for any human to fit in. So they're like looking in everything, oh, basically. God. Can you imagine? It was yeah. just like a little... Just like a little thing. They're like nothing. Little creature. Like... <laughs> There's a raccoon in there. (laughs) (laughs) This is my hiding spot. (laughs) Exactly. So they were looking at things like that were not even logical for a person to hide in. They just had to look everywhere. They were out of options. But to no avail. 
They were desperate at this point and just trying whatever they could. Philip's murder would go unsolved. Mm-hmm. And in time, his wife Helen would have to return home to an empty house. Mm-hmm. I know. Helen decided to take her time recovering and visiting with family first through the fall. And in the winter, she would come back. But during this time, neighbors said they would occasionally hear noises coming from the house, the empty house. Oh. A group of children claimed they saw the lights go on and off in the Peters' house occasionally. Yes, neighbor boys. And a ghostly face peering through the front window. Oh, someone's in there. Could it be Philip still waiting for his wife to come home? Ah, shit. It's not. Or is it? I don't know. Something's in there. Something's (laughs) living in that house. (laughs) After Christmas... Helen returned home to the bungalow with a live-in nurse and housekeeper to provide assistance and keep her company. No, she got to get out of there. (laughs) You got to get out, Helen. (laughs) But the women had scarcely been in the house for a day when the noises began. Mm. At first, it was just tapping and rattling occasionally. The house would creak and groan in the wind. So they thought they could explain away an occasional noise. But the noises became more frequent, and soon they ran out of explanations. They began to wake up in the middle of the night to the sound of disembodied footsteps and thumps. The footsteps would scurry along the floor and then seem to disappear out of nowhere. Then they would be heard on a different floor. Like whatever it was could crawl through the entire house, walls, ceilings, floors. It didn't matter. Kind of like an enormous spider. Hmm. Occasionally, they would hear it groan and sigh. But again, they found nothing. Helen knew her poor husband had died in a horrible fashion, but she couldn't help but wonder why, if it was him, he would be haunting her. This seemed like the only explanation, and yet it didn't feel like him. Then one night, when the noises were skittering all around her, Helen decided to be brave and left her bedroom to see what she could find. Don't be brave, Helen. She heard a rattling sound. The same sound she swore she heard in the walls at night. Helen made her way through the hallway and to the stairwell, but then stopped dead in her tracks. There, at the bottom of the stairs, was a tall, impossibly thin, dark figure staring back at her. Oh my god. It stared in silence while Helen froze to her spot. Then the figure shifted slightly (gasps) and began to move towards Helen. It was long and gaunt with big, hollow eyes. Shut up. Wraith-like in appearance, and it stank like an animal. As the creature shifted, it faced her completely, tilting its head and loudly chattering its vile teeth in her direction. What the hell is it? (laughs) (laughs) Helen once again found her voice and let out an ear-piercing scream. Yeah. Because the teeth chattering will do that. Yeah. Her nurse came rushing out of the room, and just as she did so, the wraith scurried away into the darkness. Convenient. And was gone. (sighs) The nurse helped Helen back to bed, but neither woman got any more sleep that night. I'm going to (laughs) cry. The next night, Helen's nurse remained downstairs after she had gone to bed, after Helen had gone to bed, that is, to keep an eye on things for a little while. So she said, you go to bed, I'll stay up for a while and make sure the house is okay. She stayed in the living room, keeping herself occupied with a book for a while before deciding it was late enough, nothing was going to happen, and that she would go to bed for the night. Nope. The nurse turned out all the lights and went into the kitchen to make sure the back door was locked. 
But when she got there, she discovered she wasn't alone. Ah, jeez. A tall, dark, wafer-thin figure lingered in a corner, staring right at her. The nurse gasped, and the figure bared its teeth at her like an angry dog. The nurse screamed, and the figure's teeth chattered and rattled, and then it vanished. Hmm. The next morning, Helen's nurse resigned. Yeah. I gotta go. <laughs> teeth chattering goes, too much. It's not good. I gotta get out of here. Oh, my God. After that, poor Helen would go through several more nurses, but none of them would stay. Two of them said they wouldn't stay in a haunted house after hearing strange noises, and a third claimed to have woken up in the middle of the night to see a pale, bony hand on her doorframe. Ew. As soon as she made noise, the hand and its owner slipped away into the <gasps> darkness. Oh, my God. So it was just, like, in the doorway to her bedroom. Ew. The hauntings had grown pretty intense. Yeah. And word began to circulate. And soon... Nurses would not accept Helen's job offers. Like, she'd, they'd find out where it was, and they wouldn't go to work for her. She needs to just leave. I know. <laughs> so then... Go stay with Pam. Enter Pam. Oh, okay. Yes, All her right. kindly dinner-making neighbor said that she would step in once again and take care of Helen, but not in Pam's house. Right. She would come and check on Helen throughout the course of the day and come to make sure that everything was locked up at night, make sure Helen was safely in bed before she left, and then she'd come back the next morning. Well, she's not safe. The thing is inside the house. Oh, and it's overnight that it comes out, so I don't know how this was helping. But you know what? Pam has great intentions, so okay. whatever. I guess she figured if she did a sweep of the house before she left, she could say at least nothing is in here. Okay, so, so Pam is doing her job, and several days go by completely uneventfully. Nothing happens. Pam is amazing. Go Spider Pam. Then one evening, Pam came by to make sure Helen made it to bed. So she would bring her up the stairs, make sure, because, you know, broke a hip, made sure she got in her bed, uh, closed her door, went downstairs, and as she was going down the stairs, she heard a strange noise, mm -mm. a rattling. She tiptoed through the kitchen, and there it was, a dark figure at the foot of the back stairwell, staring directly at her. It was horrible and filthy with big, chattering teeth. Pam, however, was not fucking around and immediately called the damn cops. She learned from the first time. She's I know. Like, she I was like, just come on. Then we're not going to let this thing just like chatter away. We got to call the cops. <laughs> it's so loud. I know. <laughs> what was the husband's name again? Philip. What if it was just Philip like, like uh, coming back? Yeah. And he was like, this is all he could do. And he's like, I'm sorry. I'm terrifying you. Like, I'm trying not to be scary. I know. I'm gross now. I'm dead. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So the police come out in the middle of the night and do a thorough sweep of the house, and yet again, they find nothing. So they had no real reason for concern, but they really did feel bad for Helen and insisted that she leave the house to stay with her son and his wife 250 miles away. Cops are really killing it in this story. I know, they are. They're like, <laughs> I know, it seems, you seem like this is all in your head because we can't find any evidence, but we've had weird stuff happened in this house, so someone could be getting in and then leaving through an entrance we can't find. Right. So you should go. Reluctantly, Helen agrees, and her son and daughter-in-law. Reluctantly. She I is know. wild. She wants to be in her home. No. But they're like, hell no. Son and daughter-in-law, happy to have Helen. They take her. Yeah. They close the house up. By this time, it was July of 1942. So this took a while to happen, obviously. The weather had turned hot, and the police had kind of run out of options. And so they just parked a few officers across the street from the Peters' house to keep watch and see if anything weird happened. Mm -hmm. 
children, again, had reported that when no one was there, they did see lights go off and on. So the cops were like, all right, we're going to see. A few nights later, as dusk began to set in, the officers sitting in their car chatted with one another and watched the postman walk down the street finishing out his route when something caught both of their eyes. A face in the window at the Peters house. It was gaunt, pale, and hollow with large, staring eyes. It looked inhuman. It was also watching the postman, which seemed odd because ghosts don't typically get mail. But this one looked rather intently at the letter letter boxes, one by one, and then, perhaps, sensing eyes finding his shadowy image, it ducked down out of sight. But both of the officers had seen it. They knew there was something in that house, and as they sat discussing its presence, they watched the curtains move. Now they knew there was something for sure. The officers left their car and, terrified to see what was waiting for them on the inside, approached the house. As they made their way to the door, the face appeared in the window again. Mm. So then they called for backup. (laughs) Smart cops, right? (laughs) Yeah. There are some reports that say they called for backup and some that say they um, blew their whistles. If there was like local other policemen, (laughs) they would hear them. And I guess that was a way you did it in the 40s. I could, I didn't really research how police communicated back then, but they (laughs) signaled Jack Jack the Ripper. I know, they just blew their whistle. (laughs) 12 o'clock, all is not well. (laughs) Come a running. But they did. Other police officers were immediately on foot running towards their location. So the two original cops take a deep breath and once again break down the door to enter the house. You think they'd have a key by now? I know. I said the same thing. I'm like, they should have given these cops a key if they needed to get in, but I guess they didn't. The house was still and eerie. The furniture was all draped in white sheets. It looked like the room was populated with Halloween ghosts. And there was something else. The smell. Though the house was totally empty, it smelled as though an animal had been nesting there. Hmm. It's that raccoon. Gonna get you. The officers cautiously went through the ground floor of the house, slowly. And in minutes, more officers arrived. The original officers signaled to them to check upstairs. And so the two backup officers ran right up the stairs. And as they did, they heard a lock latch, a strange rattling sound, and then reached the top of the stairs just in time to see a closet door across a room swinging shut. Hmm. They ran for it and threw the door back open to find two bare, filthy feet dangling from a hole in the ceiling. Ew. As the officers called out for the figure to stop where it was, the feet began to kick violently. No. (laughs) (laughs) What? Were they like little feet? Big feet? They were grown-up feet. Just kicking. Just like pale and dirty. Dirt and filthy, just kicking them. (laughs) I hate it. Okay. The space in the closet was so small that only one officer at a time could get in. Uh-huh. The first one wriggled up into the small cubby Ew. hole in the ceiling and grabbed the feet. Oh, God. And began pulling them down with all his might. I want to see what it is. When he did, a man came crashing to the floor, fainting as he hit the ground. At least they thought it was a man. It was hard to tell. The figure was filthy and so thin you could see his bones through the gray skin that hung around what was left of him. Is he chattering because he was cold? (laughs) And malnutrition. His clothing was threadbare and caked in filth, and his large, hollow eyes were bloodshot. How Mm. long had he been in this house? Mm. The police called an ambulance immediately and then went to see where exactly this man was going. Or had been going, that is. 
the hole in the ceiling of the closet, the one that the police had originally just looked, like, popped in and said it was way too small for a human to inhabit, was roughly the size of, they measured in cigar box lids. They said it's about three cigar box lids wide. Wow. Now, if you're not familiar with a cigar box, it's smaller than a standard notebook. Mm-hmm. So this is like a little hole. So small, in fact, that the first police officer to try and make it up into the mysterious space couldn't fit through it. Right. He climbed halfway up to stick his head in and look, claiming the space to be only a few sizes larger than a coffin. Ew. So oh, this is God. a very like, small crawl space in the top of an attic. I don't feel No wonder he was trying to get in the house. He's <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I need to stretch my legs. I'm hungry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when another smaller officer was called in, <laughs> he, they were like, get that one. He's little. He <laughs> Benjamin. Wiggled, <laughs> Benjamin, get up there. And he did. He wiggled his way up into the crawl space, and what he found was rather alarming. It appeared that this mysterious and now unconscious man had been living in the tiny space for some time. The smell was overpowering. Living in a tiny unfinished cubbyhole in someone else's house is rather secretive business, and it doesn't always make time or space for formal bathroom breaks. So the man, as it would seem, had to improvise and find places to occasionally relieve himself in the attic. Mm. Not only that, but it would appear that he did not own any clothing apart from the tatters on his back and had not properly bathed in years. An old ironing board lay in the attic with a couple of filthy blankets slung across it. It appeared that that was his bed. Do we know how narrow an ironing board is? So he was laying like stiff still if you're laying on an ironing board. Weird. I can't imagine laying on one and falling asleep. I can't imagine laying on one in general. A single light bulb was suspended from a wire in the ceiling, and there was trash everywhere. Newspapers, old magazines, cans, any trash that came in could not really go out without suspicion. And so it began to add up. And this space is small, just about two and a half feet tall at its highest point. So this man would have had to essentially spend all of his time laying down in the attic. Ew, ew, Holly. (laughs) If he even tried to sit, he would have to be sitting stooped over or crouched in a corner. This is so uncomfortable. But it was clear that he didn't sit up much because the ceiling was, like, just all gauzy spiderwebs stretched out, which he would have disturbed if he had been sitting up to his full height. So he was, like, slinking on the floor. He was just living with spiders. Mm -hmm. He was. They were his friends. Maybe. (laughs) He had been living up there for some time in filth with the spiders. Ew. The strange man regained consciousness in the ambulance. So the ambulance came, they loaded him up, and the doctors looked at him and said, you know, he's extremely malnourished and dehydrated. That's why he immediately passed out. Mm-hmm. Hex. Mm, hex. <laughs> there you go. Dinner. <laughs> <laughs> um, they said that he had been starved and dehydrated, like I said. He was 5 foot 10 inches tall, but wasted away to just about 137 pounds, which for a guy is pretty thin. Mm. There are some reports that say he was 70 pounds, but that would be dead at that size. Yeah. So you can take whichever one you want. They're all very old newspaper articles, and I think some wanted them to be more dire than they were. Yeah. Uh, So aside from that, though, he was seemingly healthy and cognizant. So once the EMTs brought him back around and gave him some fluids, they took him to the police station to be questioned. The officers sat him down and offered him a hot meal and a place to stretch out in exchange for a confession. And having been caught red-handed or footed, so to speak, 
he agreed to tell them his story. And what a story it was. Oh, man. He said that his name was Theodore Edward Conies and that he had been secretly living in that attic for the past nine months. Okay. This is a direct quote from his confession. <sighs> quote, Everything would have been all right and Phil Peters would have been alive today if he hadn't caught me robbing the icebox. <laughs> he was getting his back. <laughs> it was him or me. I thought he had gone out, but he was taking a nap. I hit him with the stove shaker, and then he tried to run for help. I don't know if he'd recognized me. It was nearly 30 years since he'd seen me last. Oh, no. When it was over, I ran to the attic after I washed and dried the shaker. I was sitting on that trap door when you were pounding on it from below the night you found him. So they were like, what's up there? And he was sitting on the door. Oh, jeez. Mm-hmm. So the police now knew they had found the mysterious man who murdered Philip Peters. But how had he gotten into the house? And how did he know the Peters family? Further, what could drive a person to live soundlessly, lying down in a crawl space for the span of nine months, and then make him so full of rage that he would unleash it on an innocent man? Right. Remember, Theodore didn't just hit him once, as he suggests in his confession. This was a long, brutal, and merciless beating that didn't stop when Philip died. So what happened? Was Philip like his schoolyard bully? Let's rewind. Okay. In 1899, at 31 years old, Philip Peters was offered a job as a railroad auditor for the Denver and Rio Grande Western, Western Railroad. It's a hard one to say. Hmm. While this may sound like a job that involves hard labor in a train yard, it's actually a well-paid position in the railroad's office. No Phineas Gage funny business here. An auditor reviews and verifies the accuracy of financial records and ensures that companies comply with tax norms. Their primary objective is to protect businesses from fraud, highlight any discrepancies in accounting methods, and the like. So, good job. Good office job, Phil got. With the money he had saved and his brand new steady job, Philip and his young wife, Helen, had the financial security they needed to purchase a home of their own. It wasn't a huge mansion, or even a small mansion, but the cozy little three-bedroom bungalow at 3335 West Montcrieff Place in the enviable West Highland section of the city was more than enough for the two of them. Just for comparison, this house still stands, okay? It was built in 1895 and is currently worth an estimated $931,900. Hmm. The neighborhood is like a very desirable. Right. And it's been totally flipped. It's beautiful. I'll put the link to it's like Zillow on it. Okay. You guys can look at it. So Philip and Helen settled in quickly. They immediately found the city's mandolin club as they both enjoyed playing and teaching the mandolin. Cute. Isn't that cute? They are very cute. So they figured that was a good place to make friends. Find a hobby, make some friends. Good rule. They went to weekly classes and rehearsals and occasionally taught themselves, and they did start making friends. Philip also played in the mandolin band. They were doing really well made a great many friends there over the years, but one friendship was a bit more meaningful, if not as long-lasting, as the others. The first year in Denver, Philip and Helen had attended a class at the club taught by a boy who was just 17 years old. He entered the first class extremely flustered and out of breath. Phil and Helen noticed that he seemed to be distraught and looked as though he was recovering from an illness. He said his name was Theodore Edward Conies, and though he did not possess a high school education, he assured Philip and Helen that he was more than capable on the mandolin. True to his word, Theodore did not disappoint. Hmm. No one else showed up for his class that night. It was just the two of them. Aww. 
And being exceedingly kind and empathetic people, the Peters' heart went out to the young teacher wearing the oversized coat with the raspy voice. And they asked him to come back to their home for dinner. The boy gratefully accepted. Over dinner, they learned that Theodore had been born on November 18, 1882 in Petersburg, Illinois, to parents Thomas and Isabella Conies. Theodore's father, Thomas, who had emigrated to the United States from Canada, owned a hardware store, but sadly passed away in July of 1888, when Theodore was just six years old. After this, his mother would move to Wisconsin and then to Denver to try and stay financially afloat. The hardware store had unfortunately been too much for her to handle alone, and soon they woefully fell behind on the rent, and the store quickly went out of business. Mm. Isabella, Theodore's mother, worked as a housekeeper at the Denver Democratic Club and desperately tried to keep up with the household bills and Theodore's medical expenses, though they were many and it was tough. You see, Theodore had been a sickly child. He was always struggling for breath and exhausted by the slightest exertion. It appeared that he had been born with a heart defect or some kind of trouble in his lungs. Now, this is an old-timey case, and we're talking about people without any kind of, like, medical insurance or access to long-term quality care. So there are little to no reports on what was actually wrong with Theodore. Mm -hmm. We just know he had problems from the jump. Doctors told Theodore and his mother that he would probably not live past his 18th birthday. He could not play sports or run around with the neighbor children. He could not do chores or activities. So instead, he had learned to play the mandolin, sitting in his home, alone. Okay. Theodore had not had an easy childhood. He was relentlessly bullied by other children his age for being different and small and weak. He saw the other boys playing ball and making tree houses, tumbling around in the grass, and he resented them. Mm. Every day, he resented them more, knowing he would never be able to do any of those things himself. He longed for a place of his own where he could exist without having to face the rest of the world who only mocked and judged him. Theodore told the Peterses that he did not expect to live until his graduation, and so, miserable as it was, he saw a little point in attending high school. He had dropped out about halfway through and got a job as a bookkeeper at the Denver Brass Works, teaching mandolin lessons on the side. Philip and Helen were touched by the teenager's sad story, and they told him he was always welcome to have dinner with them. They thought he was a fine boy and did not seek to mock or judge. Mm -hmm. Theodore spent many evenings after the mandolin club with Philip and Helen. They were always good to him, but eventually the boy stopped coming around. And a few years passed before they saw Theodore again. And when they did, it was clear that his situation had gotten worse. Over dinner, Theodore explained that his mother had been swindled by a couple of men who promised her untold riches. They had convinced her to sell her property back in Illinois and invest the money it fetched in their gold mine. Mm. It was a surefire win, like printing your own money. Right. It was not. Oh. Of course, the men were lying and made off with every penny of Theodore's money. Theodore's mother's money, sorry. And she never heard from them again. Now, penniless and sick herself, Theodore's mother had to move to Denver with him. She could no longer work and had to rely on Theodore for everything. So again, we don't know what kind of illness she has, but it's kind of dire and clearly terminal. Like okay. he has to care for her. And I feel like she's kind of confined to a bed most of the time. Theodore had gotten a job in advertising and was trying to make a career for himself, but things were not going well. One could hardly be creative in such circumstances. Hearing this story, Phil and Helen's heart went out to Theodore as they said goodbye to him that evening. And then, 10 years passed without a word. In 1912, Philip once again ran into Theodore on the street. But now Theodore looked desperate and filthy, disheveled and wild-eyed. 
Philip asked what had become of him, and Theodore told him his mother had died and he had lost his home. He didn't know what to do with himself. He was just trudging through the days, unable to hold down a job or find a place to live. Philip said he felt terrible for him, but shook his hand and went on his way. Hmm. What Theodore didn't tell Philip was that he was homeless and had been sleeping under bridges and in flop houses. He tried to get into the army, but they laughed at his long list of health restrictions and turned him away. He had gotten as far as California briefly, where he had to sleep on benches and in the shadows, but not knowing what else to do, he quickly returned to Denver. He watched Philip Peters that night, the man who had been so kind to him, walk away. Theodore knew Philip could have helped him, but didn't. Philip was returning to a nice home and a warm meal. He wore new clothes and drove a comfortable car. He had everything, and Theodore had nothing. And this made Theodore angry. But Theodore went on like this, a homeless drifter, getting by in the streets for the next 30 years. Before, desperation overtook him, and he found himself back in the neighborhood where Philip and Helen lived. So now we're going to go back to his confession. Okay. Quote, I was in the neighborhood in September 1941 and found the house unlocked and no one home. I went in and stole some food. I was in bad shape and my lungs were giving me a lot of trouble and I was at the end of my rope. Fall was coming on and I couldn't face another winter on the road. I had to have a place to stay. I didn't know Mrs. Peters was in the hospital. I found the hole in the closet, climbed through, and slept and slept. Whenever I heard him downstairs, I kept real still. Then I got bolder and used to shadow him from room to room. Ew. It was sort of a game. It gave me a thrill. It was the first time in my life I'd ever had anyone at my mercy, but I didn't want to hurt him. It was miserably hot in the summer, and my feet froze in the dead of winter in that attic. But it was all part of the price I was willing to pay. I can't tell you why I stuck it out. I guess it was mostly because it was a world all of my own. I used to go down and look out the windows and watch the postman come by. Nobody's written to me in 25 years. Whenever I saw people on the street, I hated them and would go back to my attic. <laughs> but it wasn't his attic, was it? No. Mm -mm. After Philip's death, Theodore stayed on in the house, making his nightly trips downstairs to raid the icebox. Whenever someone caught him, he would just stand very still until they began to panic, and then he would run. Which is a very interesting tactic, because I would think when, you, when you're, you're like trespassing in someone's home, the first thing you do is run, yeah. but he didn't. He just stopped and looked at them. And that's what made people think he was a ghost. Right. Because what it's pitch black. What else is just going to be stock still staring at you. Right. There was a thrill in this game, which drove him to creeping around the house when everyone was asleep, peeking into bedrooms, hiding behind curtains, and slinking along from room to room, watching, waiting, and observing. Philip and Helen had lived with a ghost in their home, but it just so happened that he was alive. Police detective Fred Zarnow remarked, quote, a man would have to be a spider to stand it long up there. And maybe he was. All his life, Theodore Edward Coney sought a place away from the world where he could exist in solitude. Now, he was going to get it. Coney's was tried and convicted and then sentenced to life imprisonment at the Colorado State Penitentiary in Canyon City, Colorado. He served as the prison librarian, passing his days in solitude. A warm meal and a cell ten times the size of his former residence must have been heaven to the man the world now knew as the Denver Spider-Man. 
Theodore Edward Conies entered the prison on November 18, 1942, and died in the prison's hospital on May 16, 1967, at 84 years old. He lived a long life, always believing death was just around the corner. Hope does incredible things for the human spirit, but a lack of it can literally destroy you. <sighs> the end. I'm dead. <laughs> <laughs> Did you hate it? I hated that. That was a true story. <laughs> true story, 100% true. Yeah, he, he killed him because he, like, caught him in the house, but then once he started hitting him, he, he just, was just full yeah. of rage because he resented yeah. him for having the things that he didn't. How gross. Yeah. Terrifying. Just this smelly, skinny, old, <sighs> ghostly man. just shadow him? Yeah, he, he would just, just come downstairs. Yeah, like, just imagine, like, you're just sitting and watching TV, and there I is someone hiding in your curtains. imagining that. I'll <laughs> And they saw him a handful. Philip never saw him. The women saw him a few times. Yeah. But only a handful of times. So how many times did he get away with it? Did he just stand there and watch them and they had no idea he was there? Then he went back up to his attic. They had no idea. Gosh. Yeah. The thought of inhabiting a room with someone else and never knowing they were there is like the scariest thing. Yes, it is. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, I think I did it. I'm so glad we're recording this one during the day. I yeah. need I need a lot of time to get over this. I know. You're going to go to bed tonight and be like, oh, no. It's not good. We're going to leave the light on tonight. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, there's there's pictures of it, too. I'll, I'll post pictures of Theodore and of the illustrations of the— Oh, there's yeah. the attic, too. You can see the attic. I'm good. Well, our fiends <laughs> might want to see it. Because it was the early 40s. Like, this wasn't that old-timey. I mean, like— some modern conveniences existed. Oh. Don't worry. In a couple of weeks, you'll get your chance to get back at me. Mm. <laughs> so do you have anything for us today? I know you said you brought a couple little treats. Yes. Yeah, so um, remember when we did our haunted attraction episode? Yes. Um, we asked listeners to send in any, like, spooky stories that they had. Yes. Um, we have one so oh. far. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> um, and these are really, this one isn't, uh, it's it's a little funny. Okay. Yeah, but she's got two for us. So oh, it's our best fiend, Sarah McDevitt. Ah, oh, we love Sarah. Yeah. And also, you guys, if you like this and you have stories, please send them to us. We yeah. will read them. Absolutely. We yeah. haven't been reaffirming that at all. So we said it once, got we our response, once, and then yeah. it like floated away mm-hmm. into the ether. Yeah. But yeah, send us your stories. Yeah, send us any ghost stories, weird happenings, anything that creeped you True out. True crime that it was in your life or something. Anything yeah. you have, we'll we'll mm-hmm. take it. Yeah, and um, and again, you could send those to we would be dead podcast at gmail.com. Yes. Okay. All right. So Sarah gives us two. Oh great. She said the first one was in San Diego while she was in college. She went, and I'll say this in her thing. So we're in Sarah's be, voice now. We're in Sarah's voice now. We're reading her letter to us. We went to a haunted hotel. That's how Sarah talks? Yeah. <laughs> Sarah McDevitt, I am so sorry. No, just kidding. Okay. So the first one was in San Diego while I was in college. We went to a haunted hotel in the downtown area. For the record, I did not want to go. I get you, Sarah. I would never want to <laughs> Leslie doesn't want to go either. <laughs> while I love true crime, I don't actually like being scared. I said that in Slender Man. Yeah. That was our first episode. Mm-hmm. I was like, I don't like being scared. Nope. <laughs> But peer pressure is a bitch, so I went. It sure is. It was about 10 of us. There was about 10 of us, and somehow I got pushed to the front of the group. It was hot. There was so much screaming, and I was terrified. Ew, it was hot. I hate that. You feel like you can't breathe. 
the perfect recipe for me to just pass out cold. Oh, no. Down I went like a ton (gasps) of bricks. Sarah! To get me out of there, Jason Voorhees scooped me up and carried me next door to Hooters to get a glass (laughs) of water. (laughs) And the waitress at Hooters wouldn't give me water. That's like the worst part of the story. Come on, Hooters. I can only imagine how it must have looked to have Jason carrying a passed out girl down the street. (laughs) I will never live that one down. Oh, my God. (laughs) I asked her. I was like, I can't believe they wouldn't give you water. Maybe they thought that there was a crime occurring or something. We'd still, like, help the girl. She's just like, not without wings. Ten piece or 25. (laughs) (laughs) Hooters, answer for yourself. Jason Voorhees like, I'm working. I can't eat wings and a mask. Jason Voorhees, do I look like I have money for wings on my person? (laughs) Can't. That's pretty funny. So the next one, again, they're like college age. The second was a local amusement park that turned the entire park into one giant haunted house with mazes. Again, I didn't want to go, but here we are. Poor Sarah. What are your friends (laughs) doing to you? This is just like my friends always. My friend and I were going through some sort of alien-themed maze. No, thank you. Sorry, (laughs) Holly. And we started being chased by an alien. Ew. (laughs) That's where I would have passed out. While running through the maze, I tripped and fell and took my friend down with me. No. She sounds just like me. This is 100% what would happen. While laying on the ground, we looked up and there were three aliens standing over us making sure we were okay. You no. would have died. <laughs> I would have vomited right in the haunted attraction. She said, we weren't hurt, but my friend had literally peed her pants. <gasps> oh, no. <laughs> Whoops. Horrifying. Oh. That's so funny. Just... <laughs> Oh, my God. I've only had one bad experience in a haunted house. Um, Have you had one? Uh, They're just all bad. I don't know if I've told the story on the podcast before. I may have. If I have, you get to hear it two times. So I went to uh, Creamy Acres in Mullica Mm -hmm. Hill. It's a great haunted house if you're looking for one. It's really cool. That one's terrifying. It's really scary. And they don't have this attraction anymore. They used to have one that was, like, supposed to be the frozen tundra full of ghosts. Okay. Through like or like I don't know, frozen murder or something. There's like polar bears and ice zombies and stuff. Very original idea. And you go in and the whole thing is fog. It's like super foggy, so foggy that you can barely see. And I have asthma. And at the time I had been recovering from like bronchitis or something. This is years ago. I had no COVID. I was like 25. I had no kids. Mm. Um, so I'm coughing. And I'm coughing to the point in there because of all the fog where I cannot breathe. I'm like gasping for breath. It was like a pretty shitty situation. And I had become separated from Will and the other people that were with me. So I'm like stumbling along by myself, gasping for breath. And the actors are like, oh, this is fun. They didn't realize I was actually in a situation. And they kept being like, cough until you die. And they're like coming closer to me. And like, you know, it was really menacing and scary. And then there's this one guy zombied out, covered in blood, chained to a wall. And he was like, hey, hey, hun, come here. The emergency exit is right there. So this zombie man chained to a wall like saved my life. That's amazing. I know. And the rest of them were probably like, oh no, we're assholes. (laughs) (laughs) I don't blame them. They didn't know that I was actually having a really hard time. Right. (laughs) (laughs) That was my hard time in a haunted house. Oh gosh. No, all of mine are like fused together, just being a horrible experience. Oh, no. Yeah, I don't 
I don't do great in anything where there are like a lot of jump scares. Yeah. I don't like them at all. Like I love a good scary story. I love to be, you know, like imagining and seeing things. I like a scary movie, but I don't want you to jump out of a closet and give me a heart attack. No. So I have a funny relationship with haunted houses. If I could walk through them assured that no one was going to jump out at me, like, or even get close enough to me, they Mm -hmm. could jump out, but don't get close enough to me where you're almost touching me. Then I would love them. They would be my favorite thing in the world because I love the sets and the drama and the everything, the costumes, the animatronics. Fucking love that. I just don't love, like, looking over my shoulder the whole time because Mm -hmm. then I can't appreciate anything. Right. Well, I was when we went to Salem, it wasn't during ho- the Halloween season. Mm-hmm. So that's how everything was in Salem. It was really nice. Oh, yeah. Um, and a lot of those things do stay the same in October. Yeah. Count Orlocks does. I don't mm-hmm. know if they do it now, but I told you in the episode where we talked about Salem that they do turn the Wax Museum or the, the movie Monster Museum into a haunted house at night. Mm-hmm. And it's just people in costumes standing really still around all the other costumed figures. So you can't tell who's real and who isn't. Mm-hmm. And then they just walk out of the display and follow you. It is horrifying. That that is horrible. And they follow you through the rest of the thing like an inch from your face. They just are on top of you. I'm good. Yeah, Will and I went once at night and never again. (laughs) We only go to Count Orlocks in the daylight hours. Oh, Mm. no, thank you. Yeah. So thank you for that haunted attraction story. That was fun. If you guys have anything else, please send it along, haunted attraction or not. And then, um, and then in two weeks, so we'll have our live show. Yes, and we will broadcast me as well. Yes, we will be broadcasting <laughs> our live show. We'll, we're going to record it, and then we'll uh, release the recording for everybody yeah. um, that Tuesday. Mm-hmm. We worked so out some kinks from our last one. So yes, we'll- and our recording situation is going to be different. Like this is not going to be in a busier space. The people that are in the space are there to see us, so there won't be a lot of auxiliary talking or anything mm-hmm. like that. You'll be able to hear it much better. Yeah, um, but if you're there and you holler something, it might make it in. It just might. It just might. But then, so in two weeks, yes, I will scare Holly yes, to death. Two weeks will be <laughs> Leslie's revenge. <laughs> yeah, so make sure you uh, tune in for both of those. And I hope I see you guys. Yeah. I really want this to be like, have everybody come out and see us. It's going to be super fun. I know. It's going to be a good time. It is going to be a good time. So uh, let's have a toast. Okay. Shall we? First to uh, Sarah McDevitt for sending us those great stories. They were yes. so funny. We love it. Uh, then to who do you who do you want to toast in my story? Um, There's a couple ones. Okay, I guess to Pam. Pam, Pam, the neighborly spider Pam, the, who figured it out. She, she really went. did. Cheers to Pam. Um, obviously Helen and Philip, and uh, you know the son and daughter-in-law that took her in. Yes, <laughs> to the Peters family. Yeah, all of them. Do you have anyone else in your story? No, I think I think those were all of the real good ends. And the cops. The cops really did their job in that story. They sure did, they like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Even though it seems like she was a crazy lady reporting a ghost, they took her very seriously and, like, That's right. you know, stayed outside her house and watched them. Right, so. to the cops. To the, to the cops. All right. Right. And we have a new fiend this week. <gasps> Hooray! Yes. Um, she loves living in the walls. Oh, great. But she doesn't need to now because she just got married and has a new home with her husband. Oh, wonderful. To the new Rachel Daniels. Cheers. She's a best fiend forever. Cheers, Rachel. Thanks for being our best fiend forever. Yeah. And congratulations. Congratulations (laughs) on your wedding. Glad you don't have to live in the walls anymore. (laughs) 
I mean, it's nice to come out of the walls. Maybe he'll live in there with her. Maybe they just live in the walls together now. That's gross. <laughs> you brought it on I yourself. I did it. I did I didn't it. even say I it. I tried. I tried to make it cool, and I didn't like it. <laughs> awesome. <sighs> and if a terrifying specter lived within our walls, we, we would, would be, be dead. dead. <laughs> 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 the deadest Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. There is no dick fiends here. (laughs) That's the tag this week. You're welcome.